Good morning. Today we're reading from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, the laborers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received a denarius. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this to the last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Hello. When I read this parable, and I started to think about what I would talk about, I called the talk in my head, God is not fair. I was struck by the end of the parable, which in the NIV reads, have I, I have not dealt unfairly with you, but as we saw in other versions, tends to be, I have done nothing wrong by you. I was struck because I read it, and um, it does seem a little unfair to me. Uh, am I the only person who feels for those first day workers? <laughs> just, just me, that's okay. You're all better than me, it's fine. <laughs> so. I set out to understand uh, what's wrong with me if I identify with those petulant lot. Um, but I also called it God is not fair because I believe we deeply misunderstand God if we think that God is a God of fairness in the way that most people use that term instead of a God of justice, mercy and love. None of which are quite the same as fairness in my experience. I hope this will make sense to you as we go along. Now, I must admit to being a little nervous today. Um, I know your usual preacher. I've listened to some of his sermons in preparation for this. It always makes other preachers nervous when you go back and listen to all their stuff. Um, but I also know the things that you do as a community when it comes to inclusion and accessibility. And I'm quite, um, it, it's exciting to be here and see all the different projects you're doing. Um, so what I did because of my nerves was I over-engineered my sermon. I read far too many things, and it is possible to read too many things, um, and so many things on this parable that my brain just began to swirl. I wanted to find a way to make it kind of clear or straightforward. Um, I felt like I needed to get it right. 
But the thing about parables is they aren't often clear in that sense. They have more than one meaning, as we will see. Rather, the genre of parables exists to provoke us to think or to imagine as much as they do exist to teach us. This parable occurs in Matthew's gospel, a gospel in which Jesus is not shy of making bold, clear statements about his followers, how they should behave, or indeed what they're doing wrong. So I suggest to you that when we come upon a parable, it is there to provoke something more than simply a clear meaning we can grasp, which is good, because this parable in particular is not easy to pin down, and it helps me greatly to think that's part of its purpose, not necessarily a deficiency in me and my reading. I read this parable again and again, and I read many commentators who said different things. And I still couldn't get it quite straight in my head as a kind of straight allegory for this is God and we're the workers and how does that work. See, there are interpretations that put it firmly in a context of Matthew's Jewish audience. They say this is about Jesus saying that God will bless those who come late to a relationship with God in kind of the history of salvation, i.e. the Gentiles. But for me, that doesn't quite make sense of this brilliant sentence at the end, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And there are interpreters who say this is a straight allegory. God is the landowner. We sinners are the workers who come at the 11th hour, which is nice, but again, kind of makes God a bit awkward for me. Um, and then there are some really fun ones who say that this shows that God is in favor of capitalism and a sort of exploitation of workers that seems to be on show here. And I can't quite explain how annoyed those ones made me. Um, but they seem to again miss this key phrase at the end about the first being last and the last being first. And also why tell us that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like? Why make a parable where we might feel conflicted about what the landowner is doing? And all of these interpretations miss out this phrase at the beginning. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And few of them embrace the implications of the last shall be first and the first shall be last. A key for me is looking at the genre of this story. A parable is a creative engagement. Like a storyteller telling a fairy tale, Jesus invites us into a slightly different world. We are being invited to imagine with Jesus, to think differently. In fairy tales, we don't expect that everything will map directly onto our own world. So maybe we should be ready for this when we encounter parables. Because the beginning verse is crucial. The kingdom of heaven is like. Why does Jesus need to tell a story to make us imagine? To stop thinking in the way we always do maybe and step inside the world of the kingdom of heaven and think about what that is like. But why now? Well, just before this, in fact, as part of the same conversation, Jesus has been telling the disciples that it will be harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel go through the eye of the needle. They've just met the rich young man who, if you remember, comes to Jesus and says, I've obeyed all of the laws all, you know, of God since my birth. How do I get into the kingdom of heaven? And he says, well, go and sell everything that you own. And the rich man, we're told, goes away disappointed. But the disciples can't quite fathom this teaching. 
they quibble with Jesus and they say, look, we've left everything for you. What will we have in the end if we've left everything? And Jesus tries to reassure them that those who leave things for him will get a reward and says, but the first, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first for the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he begins this parable. When they can't understand, when they can't shake their worldly understanding of how they think God rewards people and what God would do, Jesus tells them a story. And in this story, everything is a bit strange. The landowner keeps going out and getting more workers. This is not typical, that his manager should be doing that, but he goes out himself. He doesn't seem to have any budget for the work, but keeps going and just getting more and more people, more and more things to do. Any who need to have work will get it in his vineyard. And at the end, he pays everyone what they need to buy a day's worth of food instead of paying them by the hour, which would be kind of standard. The vineyard is not normal. This landowner does not obey the rules of economics. He doesn't even seem very good at business. Jesus, what Jesus does is he tells us a disruptive story. A story that makes you go, huh? A story that makes you realize that your own way of assessing what is right and correct or the way things should be done may not work in the world of the story. And therefore our way of doing things may not work if we want to establish or live like this is the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven does not obey the rules that we make in this world. The kingdom of heaven, we seem to be being told, has deeper principles. That the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, if you, like the disciples and probably the rich young man, and to be honest, me prepping this, are still going, yeah, but, uh, that's okay. One of the great joys for me, and this is a bit of an aside, but one of my favorite things about studying the New Testament is that it is evidence for us that there never was a perfect follower of Christ, there never was a perfect church that got it completely right. All of our gospels and all of our letters talk about people going, I don't know how to do this, how do I do it, how do I do it better? That makes me always feel better when I read the New Testament. These are the guys who are following Jesus around and they still don't listen properly, and they still get it wrong all the time, they don't quite know who he is, they're confused about how it's gonna work out, and don't always know what to do, and they're with him every day. So again, maybe it's just me and not you, but I find that reassuring. You see, the very next part of Matthew, just after this parable, is some disciples getting it wrong again. And even though Jesus has just said twice that the last will be first and the first will be last, Two of the disciples immediately ask him which of them can be first. In fact, in a hilarious comedy moment, they get their mummy to ask for them. <laughs> Talk about missing the point entirely. So Jesus has to say to them again, and this time he gets really clear, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It will not be so with you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And his example for this is himself. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, he says. But none of it seems fair to the disciples. From the rich young man to this bit about serving each other, it just doesn't seem quite fair. They absolutely sound like the early day workers in the parable. But Jesus just will not let up with this teaching of the last being first. 
So the parable sits in between two pieces of teaching where we constantly hear the first will be last and the last will be first. But it's not a rule. Because the rich young man had rules and he obeyed those rules. This is a value. It's something you have to apply, which is much harder than rules, but so much more important. The parable invites the hearers to imagine the kingdom of heaven as a place where this value applies, and then it disrupts all your expectations. In this very next passage, Jesus has to explain there'll be servants to one another, and he will give his life. The whole conversation starts with God's crazy generosity to the poor, and it ends in Christ's servanthood. And somewhere in the middle, we, the followers of Christ, are challenged to live out this kingdom value. What on earth, then, does that look like? Because Jesus does seem to expect us to follow it. I work a lot in areas of inclusion and accessibility. I out here talk often of what is fair. I mainly work in activism and education around these issues um, when I'm doing them, so the conversations I have are often people saying how hard they find it. How difficult it can be to consider what we say all the time about gender and sexuality in case we get it wrong, or how difficult it is to make things accessible for disabled people because it doesn't seem fair to make everyone change just in case a disabled person needs something. But quite often the grumbling or the resistance comes from people who generally do good things. Like the workers that came early in the day, or the rich young man, they've been doing all the things asked of them, and now this feels like we're pouring on more stuff, more rules, more things to do. I think it feels that way because we have failed to put values in place, and we've gone for rules instead. Rules seem easier to follow, but it is values that really change a culture. You see, in 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with values versus rules. The Corinthians write to him and they ask, what is the rule regarding eating meat offered to idols in the marketplace? And Paul, being Paul, doesn't quite give a clear answer that we'd all like um, about those idols. He seems to say they are both nothing and gods, and it gets very confusing. But about whether you can eat the meat, he says, and I am paraphrasing here, you're free in Christ to eat it. You have the right to eat or drink whatever you want. But, because Christ is bigger than those rules. But, if it is confusing or hurtful to someone else, don't do it. Paul constantly asks the stronger members of the community to put aside the things they are rightfully allowed, rightfully allowed, if it helps others. Even more consistently, he asks the rich, therefore the most privileged members of the group, to sacrifice their social niceties and their rights to welcome the poor into the group. What's shocking about Paul's teaching, and probably about the workers wanting more pay in the parable, is that no one is asking to be allowed to do anything bad, or for anything morally dubious. The Corinthians are saying, is it okay if we're free in Christ to do this? And the workers are simply saying, could we have the pay that seems fair if we've been here all day. They're asking for what is socially and morally acceptable and right, and the answer still comes. It's better to sacrifice that for somebody else. Serve others first. I think it can be easy to think of being a Christian as not doing bad things. But actually, most of Paul's letters are about putting others first, even if that means not doing something that you're absolutely right and have the moral high ground to do. 
When Paul says to the Corinthians to consider the most vulnerable among them instead of their own freedoms in Christ, he uses his own pay as an example. And it's quite lovely because he does this rhetorical trick where he lays out all the reasons he should definitely be paid. And he's very convincing. He has an example from the law of Moses, an example from temple priests, an example from soldiery, and an example from winemaking. He's got all of the world covered. If you've got a reason where someone doesn't be, can't get paid, Paul's got it covered. And it's a very convincing argument. And then suddenly he says, but I won't take your money. Because it's better I don't have money than I make a barrier to someone finding Christ. The principle here is not what does God say it's okay to do and here are the rules we follow. The principle is it doesn't really matter what the rules are if they get in the way of someone meeting Christ. Give them up. Put the most vulnerable at the centre. Put the last first. And his reasoning is he imitates Christ. Christ who didn't use his godly nature to lord it over humanity but came to serve. Christ who in Matthew 20 tells his disciples to serve one another as he came to serve. Now I have to tell you that I am impatient for this first, last, last, first disruptive kingdom values thing. I read Galatians where it says there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And I am impatient for the time when I see it because I don't see it yet. I don't see equality yet. I believe we are all equal in Christ, but I do not live in a world where we are all equal. Is it our job then as the church to put the last first and the first last to serve one another, to upend social rules and live as though it is true? But we aren't always great at it. And it's clear that just saying we're all one in Christ Jesus isn't enough. I recently had a minor argument with a fellow minister about cancel culture. Their opinion was that it's just too difficult these days because even when we are saying things that are biblical, we have to think before we speak in case we upset people. Now, aside from the fact that we sort of disagree on what's biblical, um, biblical scholars will always disagree on what biblical means. My opinion was, yes, it is hard. Yes, we do have to think but that this is good. Because hopefully we are all encountering more and more people in our lives who don't look like the old version of the majority. Hopefully our lives intersect with more diverse people. And it's a tiny thing to think before we say something about whether it's going to hurt a person, even if we're saying something that is what we consider to be the truth. But what a Christ-like thing and what a blessing to be able to look at the person you're talking to and consider their wholeness above your own. That's the sort of sacrifice, and it's only a little one, that brings the statement we are all one in Christ Jesus into reality for just a moment and makes it true here and now and not something we just believe in. We still need to be working harder, obviously, to sacrifice the privileges of those of us who are white or male or non-disabled or straight or cisgendered so that our siblings in Christ can get a seat at the table. The theological truth that all are equal in Christ is not a social reality yet. It isn't true in all our churches, in our schools, maybe our workplaces. It isn't true out there on the street. I called this God is not fair 
because I don't believe in fairness that becomes a rule you can wield. I'm allowed to do this, or you're allowed to do this, so I'm allowed to do this, and that's fine. Because the world we live in, that's not justice. And I do believe that God is just. That God privileges the vulnerable and the poor, and it is that that will bring equality. The theological truth that we are all one in Christ is not a social reality yet. And our job, it seems to me, as the church in the world, is to work for it to become so. I'm impatient for this day when this kingdom of heaven, this place where first and last are upended and turned upside down, becomes reality. Until then, Jesus leaves us the challenge with his disciples in Matthew 20. Your job is to serve. I think the parable challenges us to imagine then what that sort of upending looks like in our situations. You see, a denarius is what a man needed to live on, a day's wage that would be a fair price to feed a family. And the landowner gives everyone what they need, ignores economic rules about pay. But this isn't a lesson about how we pay people. It's a lesson for those of us who've been around a while doing the work to see that it's the generosity that disrupts the rules. And do you know what the real joy of that is? The real joy is it requires us to listen and know one another. How can I know how to serve you unless I know you? How can I know how to serve my community unless I know it? I'm kind of over the idea that I can follow Christ on my own, believing in the right things. It seems the longer I live, the more that following Christ is entirely linked to my knowing people and seeing that they have something of God that I need to understand. The rules of right and wrong can be followed individually, but service, that needs community. The kingdom of heaven where the landowner pays people in frankly crazy ways is one where the landowner knows everybody, knows what they need. I get given a block of marzipan every Christmas by my mother. Every Christmas, and sometimes on my birthday too. Just a whole block, nothing fancy in it, block of Sainsbury's marzipan wrapped up. This is a sweet joke that my family find very funny. You see, my parents brought me up, they are very, uh, very well, and they're very lefty and socialist, and they brought me up to share, and it was a very important thing in our family, was sharing. And I'm the youngest of two, and I often had to share things, and lots of my presents were hand-me-downs, and I didn't care. There's a Christmas that I was super excited to get my sister's bike. All I'd wanted for the whole year was my sister's bike, and that's what I got for Christmas. Brilliant. What a perfect little child I was. But one year I was asked to write a Christmas list and I wrote only one thing on it and I was about six or seven and I wrote, I would like a block of marzipan, all of my own, that I do not have to share with anyone. My parents had taught me all this lovely stuff about sharing and all it had done was turned me into a child that just wanted her own thing that she didn't have to share. So Christmas morning though came and I got a block of marzipan and it had a note on it saying, this is just for you and you don't have to share it. Now my mother could have doubled down on her teaching. That would have been fair. It would have been equal. But she knew that I just needed to feel that I had something of my own. And she still ribs me about it by pointedly putting a block of marzipan in every Christmas gift I have with a note that says, this is just for you, you don't have to share it. <laughs> At 44, I still get this note, because she's a good parent, and what parent gives up a really good joke that you can play on your kids forever? 
So she saw what was needed for me to feel seen and heard, and she put the value of seeing and hearing me above her rules that it was good to share. Her generosity was greater than the standard agreements in the household about what we should be given. It's a silly part of my life, but it resonates with me between the parable and what I feel the kingdom of heaven looks like. Not fairness, but throwing the rules and rankings out of the window to give someone what they need. Jesus' teaching frequently disrupts our ability to be solitary or insular in our ideas of salvation or serving God. From meeting the rich young man to predicting his death, Jesus just keeps throwing the disciples this enigmatic value of the kingdom of heaven as a place where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And it echoes the contrariness of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. God is not fair. Rather, God challenges us to work with new values entirely and create this place. A place where we must know one another, a place where we must serve one another, a place where we must be connected, and a place where the abundant generosity of the landowner disrupts the rules and equality is no longer a fairy tale. We're going to bring our intercessions to God now, and on this time of remembering fair trade fortnight it seemed appropriate to use a sequence put together by cathod the uh, uh, catholic agency for overseas development it's in sections at the end of each section i'll leave a brief period of silence for us to bring our own prayers to god and when I say, Lord, hear our prayer, would you please respond and let our cry come to you? Blessed are the poor. Set us free from the shackles of affluence. Save us from the false values of our society. Make us see the poor and powerless as the people who you will fill with good things while the rich go empty away that we may, with all your children, be worthy to inherit your kingdom. Lord, hear our prayer, and let our cry come to you. Blessed are those who mourn. Make us mourn for the sins that enslave your children, for the exploitation of the weak by the strong, for unemployment and hunger in the midst of plenty, that in our struggle for the kingdom, we may be comforted and strengthened by your promises. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cry come to you. Blessed are the meek, save us from un unruly passions and the aggressiveness that this world teaches. Teach us to learn from the powerless who bear one another's burdens, that with understanding and forbearance we may be fit to share the earthly inheritance entrusted to us. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cry come to you. Blessed are the pure in heart, Keep us pure in faith and life. Inspire us with singleness of heart and mind that we may seek only your kingdom and justice, your will for ourselves and others, 
that together we may see your glory. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cry come to you. Blessed are the hungry. Save us from the sinfulness of unbridled consumption. Make us hunger and thirst after righteousness to strive after a world where all have enough to eat and all can work in the expectation of fair pay. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cry come to you. Blessed are the peacemakers, that we may be peacemakers, that the nations of the earth may put away their trust in armaments and in war for the solution of conflict, and that we may bring an end to a society where class conflict reigns. Lord, hear our prayer. Let our cry come to you. Blessed are the merciful. Awaken us to our need for your mercy. Deepen our capacity to be just and merciful to others, to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. And may our concern for others be filled with healing power. Lord, hear our prayer. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Help us to bear the reproach of many, to dance the joy in the knowledge that God's way will prevail, to consider suffering for right a small sacrifice in the light of the triumph to come. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cry come to you. Amen. And let us conclude the service by singing our last hymn. So go into God's world with love, hope, joy and faithfulness in your hearts and may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer be with us all today and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>